And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Anyone who watches CNN regularly or reads the pages of USA Today knows that Kirsten Powers is a really thoughtful commentator, someone who thinks before she speaks and is willing to test her own assumptions as well as those of others. I sat down with her recently in Washington to talk about her own interesting journey and her own struggles with anxiety and personal trauma. Here's that conversation. Kirsten Powers, it's so good to see you. It's great to be here. I, uh, I, I was. I always do a little reading before these conversations, and um, I know your folks were academics. Mm-hmm. Uh, met in Madison, Wisconsin, yep. uh, but you grew up in Alaska. I did. Yeah. Yeah. That. Tell me about that. Well, you know, people always ask, "What was it like to grow up in Alaska?" And it's just all I really knew. So it seemed completely normal. Uh, looking back on it, it actually wasn't normal at all <laughs> because it's I grew up in Fairbanks, Alaska, too, which is really hardcore Alaska. Yeah. It's not, you know, it's it's pretty far north. Could you um, see Russia from your... I could. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it, it's uh, very, very cold. It's regularly, you know, 40, 50 below. That's completely normal in the winter. Dark all the time. You know, it was regular, you know, I'd, I'd leave for school in the morning. It'd be pitch black. I'd come home. It'd be pitch black. That was kind of my life. And so that's that's not really normal. Um, mm-hmm. And um, it was also, I grew up in the 70s, and so this was a very different time. The internet didn't exist. Uh, we didn't have cable news. We didn't have cable, period. It didn't um, right. even exist. So we were really cut off um, from what we call the lower 48. And so it was almost like growing up in another country. Uh, the news was... Uh, delayed you know we wouldn't find out about things like right when they happened uh i guess unless you were listening to the radio or something but it just wasn't the way it is today where you know i look at my nieces and they're very up on everything and they're very up on all the trends and everything but i was really for better and worse yeah for better and worse and i think i actually always say like i feel like i got a real childhood right because i just didn't wasn't exposed to a lot of what kids today are exposed to, or even I think probably what a lot of kids my own age were exposed to. Um, You know, I came home from school and the only thing on TV was The Lone Ranger and Leave it to Beaver. And so sometimes I'm like, it feels like I grew up in the 50s, Mm -hmm. uh, but it wasn't. I was interested to read uh, some of your comments about Sarah Palin, Mm -hmm. uh, because you were like the, you were kind of a... uh, a guide, a Sherpa for people when <laughs> she got a, a appointed or, or uh, when she got named as the yeah. running mate for John McCain because nobody quite knew what to make of her or Alaska. And you you said that she kind of reflected uh, women in Alaska who have a different experience than women in other parts of the country. Yeah, and, and, and I should say I'm not a Sarah Palin fan in terms of her politics or even how she ultimately sort of comported herself, I think, as the nominee. But before she was selected, I when she was governor and I would go home and my family's very liberal, uh, very Democratic. They've never voted for a Republican. And I would always ask what's going on in politics. And they'd always say, oh, we have this, you know, this governor and she's a Republican, but, you know, she's she's going after the good old boys and, you know, we like her and she's, 
you know, they, they, there was definitely a positive attitude about her. Now, once she got on the national ticket and started attacking Obama, it was pretty much over for my family. Um, but uh, she reflected a very, when she was a governor, a very independent spirit. And yeah, was she was not, elected as an insurgent. Yeah, I and mean, she, she was, challenged the establishment. She was challenging there. the establishment, exactly. And so she, so that, that was a very, that's actually a very classic Alaskan way to be, I think. And, um, but in particular, in Alaska, you know, you can always, there's all these t-shirts and everything that you can buy and bumper stickers that say, you know, Alaska women kick, I don't know what you can say on here. You can, but it's a podcast, yeah, you can you say, can say it Alaska all. women kick ass. Like that's that's kind of an attitude there that they, you, you definitely grow up with a sense of you can kind of do anything. That's a very Alaskan way of thinking. It's interesting when you say that to think about Lisa Murkowski, yeah, the senator from Alaska who was... Uh, beaten in a Republican primary, ran a write-in campaign as an independent and won. And to this moment, you know, has at times uh, stood apart from the Republican caucus relative to Donald Trump on Kavanaugh, on the ACA, uh, and probably feels the latitude to do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And she's another good example of, I, I don't think my family voted for her, but they like her. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the kind of uh, they'll still vote for the Democrat, I think, but they're still like oh, Lisa, you know, like it's like she's another independent minded person, you know, and she also is very connected to the indigenous community there and really sticks up for them. And so I think that that's, you know, another big reason that she was able to win. You uh, let's talk about your family. Uh, your 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 dad was an archaeologist. Yeah, both my parents were actually. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. And um but they split up when you were pretty young. They divorced when I was five. So they they met in Madison, getting their PhDs at the University of Wisconsin, and then they um, their mentor moved up to Alaska to the University of Alaska in Fairbanks and said, "Oh, it's really great. You should come up here." And they said, "Oh, except well, for the dark and the cold." Yeah, and the- they're like, "Oh, it's an adventure. We'll go up for a couple years." You know, and so they went up, and then of course they stayed for their whole careers um, because they lo- they loved it so much. And then uh, so I was three when we moved up there, and then at when I was five they divorced, but they continued to work together in the same department for the rest hmm. of their career. So, That's unusual. It's unusual, yes, to mm-hmm. have them. You know, I'd go over to see them, and their offices were you know like a couple doors down from each other. And how did that impact on you? That the their um, well, the divorce was devastating. Uh, there's, there's no question for me. I mean, especially at, at age five, that's, um, I think, a very critical part of, you know, when you're still really developing. Yeah. And I was very aware of what was happening. I went through this myself. Really? Yeah. yeah. And so it's, um, it, you know, my brother was three, so he doesn't really remember it. Um, I do remember it. And, and it was also, people didn't get divorced very well back then. Uh, you know, today I see people getting divorced and there's counselors and there's talking about it. And we're going to, you know, we're going to do this, you know, where all the kids are allowed to ask questions and whatever. It was mine was much more. Also, my family's Irish, which if anybody's from an Irish family knows what that means, you know, don't really talk about things and don't really express emotions. And so it was more like this. This happened. And then deal with that's it. it. Yeah, I mean, it was never spoken of again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it was, yeah. So I think that made it more traumatic because you, you're just like, I don't understand, you know, what, what's happening here. Now my dad's living in a different place and I only see him on the weekends. And, um, and it, yeah, and so I think that, it, I think it was very traumatic. I think it was very formative for me. You wrote a, a 
a, I wanted, there are a couple of very, very self-revelatory pieces you wrote that I admired because I think they would be they they were inspiring hmm. to people who were going through struggles. But one of them was uh, about something that happened when you were in high school there, mm-hmm. um, where uh, that you wrote during the Kavanaugh right. hearings, and I remember watching you on TV and the sort of the the, the obvious. Um, passion that you you brought to the discussion that was born of your own experience what what happened well i basically um when i was i was like a sophomore probably in high school um so i think i was probably 15 uh i was at a party it was one of the first parties that i'd ever been to and i was drinking and i didn't had no experience drinking and I was with mostly older boys and sort of being, you know, here, have another drink, have another Mm -hmm. drink and drank so much that I blacked out. And when I sort of woke up, there was this boy on top of me and um, I couldn't really remember what had happened. And he was one of the most popular boys at school. He was, you know, one of the star basketball players, which at my school was everything. Um, And, I didn't really know what had happened. And then I think the next day or a couple of days later, whenever we were back at school, one of my, my friends came out of the locker room and was very shaken, one of my male friends. And, and I said, you know, what happened? And he said he was telling us all all these things that he did to you while you were passed out. Um, and I was so ashamed you know, I just was so horrified. And I basically said to my friend, and there was like, some evidence that you, that, that, that that was true. You you found yourself in uh, kind of a yeah state of disrobement that oh, you right. weren't in I, when yes, you exactly yeah, yes yeah. yes yes my shirt was off and so it was like and I was you know and I was I was a young fifteen again going back to kind of you know I had a pretty sheltered kind mm-hmm. of childhood and so I wasn't um, you know maybe some people would say some fifteen year olds are you know more experienced I was definitely not in the category of experienced um, and so I think maybe I'd kissed one boy or my boyfriend or something, you know. Um, And so it was pretty horrifying to me. But I really was ashamed. And I told him, don't tell anybody. You know, I don't want anybody to know about this. I didn't talk to my friends about it. I just was, I was just so ashamed. And so I, you know, kind of honestly just shelved it and never really thought about it again until the Kavanaugh stuff came up. And one of the points I made in the column was people were making a lot about the fact that uh, Christine Blasey Ford couldn't remember the house or couldn't remember, you know, and I'm like, I I don't remember what house it was in. I don't remember even what month it was or, you know, I have a kind of rough, you know, with trauma, you don't really, that's not really how it works. But you did remember who the person was. I do remember who the person was. Yeah. And there's no question. Um, and when I wrote the piece, then I had other people – well, and I think I wrote in there as well that I, I then found out later he did something similar to one of my friends. Um, and we talked about it um, after I wrote the piece, you know, and then it was more like uh, – more came out that this was something that he was, you know, doing to a lot of girls. Yeah. And um, what what went through your mind when you heard that testimony – um, I mean, and and saw the reaction to it. I you know that was a really hard time the whole whole Kavanaugh situation because I think it's just this still this feeling that women like everyone will bend over backwards to do whatever they can 
to somehow defend the guy. That's what it found felt like to me. You know, it, she seemed very credible to me, um, and there just was this feeling of um, she's just not being taken seriously. You know, and it's not. And then it's like well, this is why I didn't tell anybody. Mm-hmm. This is why women don't tell. This is what you know. And so, seeing In that, that sense, that exercise may have actually set us back. Yeah, yeah. That this is why women don't report sexual harassment is why, you know, people are always saying like, why don't you? I mean, I've also been sexually harassed, like seriously sexually harassed. I've never. Well, we'll get to that because yeah. you worked at Fox. And, yeah. And but actually it wasn't even at Fox. Fox it was, News, yeah. yeah. Um, it was another, you know, uh, on can on a campaign actually, you know, and um, you know, where it was quite traumatic and, but it would I would never have reported it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? There's just no I mean, first of all, as you know on campaigns, who do you report it to? Um it's kinda like they're kind of they exist and then they don't. You know? Um but it's like there's no HR office really. Right. Um but it is as, as Bernie Sanders is discussing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um but but there's been other times that it's happened. It's been kind of a part of my life and as it has been for so many women. Um but you don't you don't report it because you're not going to be believed probably or somehow you're going to be torn apart and it's going to somehow end up being your fault. One of the one of the things that's so interesting about your writing and your commentary is that you seem to wrestle a lot with these issues and try and look at them from yeah different perspectives yeah. and as you look at this me too movement which you know I think has been very powerful um are there any concerns about um you know, the, the pendulum swinging so far in the other direction that even the intimation of something verified or not can be can be yeah. weaponized. It's interesting that you noticed that. I <laughs> one of my friends said to me, like people would be shocked at how much you think about these things, yeah. uh, and how much uh, I listen. Even to what, sitting on a television set with you, I yeah, I can see that. Yeah, how much I actually consider on every issue, like you know, if. A, you know, if I'm saying something, but a conservative is saying something else that I actually think really think about what they're saying. And I'm actually really trying to get it right and trying to be fair. Um, and I do think with me too, uh, I haven't yet seen anything where I would say, I think it went too far. Um, you know, a lot of people say, Oh, it's gotten out of control. And I always say, well, like with who, like who was it that, you know, was Charlie Rose supposed to not lose his job? Was Matt Lauer not supposed, I don't really understand. What about you know? Franken? I don't. I actually think Franken should have resigned, and I wrote a column saying that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that, and I know that that makes a lot of people angry. But um, it's. I think that grabbing women. A lot of people have said, "Oh, he's just would grab." It's like no, like you don't get to grab women's butts. If that's what. Yeah, um, it was a lot of women who made the yeah. accusation. I guess my feeling about that one yeah. was he asked for a hearing. Yeah. And he got pushed off the yeah. ledge before he got his hearing. Right. I think, I, and I think a lot of people feel like what ends up happening is then the hearing takes so long, and by the time it happens, you know, there's no, it, it, it really just becomes a he said, she said anyway, right? There's no, like, evid, like, what would the evidence be? But I think that's a fair point. I mean, may, maybe they could have given it, given him, you know, more time. I think they would have, frankly, if not yeah. for the. Alabama yeah. election th- where that was an issue and Democrats were going after the Republican right. so for the, it. So the problem is, and I, I think this is what my argument was in my column, is 
if Democrats are going to come out and say, believe women, and you have multiple women, and there were quite a few women who made these accusations, including women who voted for him and were supporters of him. So it's not just, um, you know, people, it's not just like some right wing hit job. Um, You have to hold everyone to the same standard. So Mm -hmm. either you switch the standard and we now give everybody, you know, a long time. And and I'm open to that argument. You know, maybe there should be more time. I think it is. In the case of these other people, Charlie Rose and um, Moonves and all of these other people, there have been either internal or external investigations. But weren't those, those were more done after the fact, though, it feels like. I mean, I don't feel like they did. I don't know. I mean, I don't know if each and every case. And I I certainly, look, in the main, I I thoroughly accept your your, I think what it is is this feeling that, you know, women need to be believed and that women almost never bring false accusations. It happens. It happens. But it's rare precisely because of what I just said, which is that most women know even today, that if you bring these accusations, like the chances of you recovering from it and having a normal life are very, very well. Well, and certainly the Christine Blasey Ford yeah. example is a negative right. example in yeah. that regard. Um, l- l- let me ask you, because uh, I don't want to lose the thread of your story. You said your parents were um, were liberals, were Democrats. Were, was politics discussed very uh, much around so. you when you were yeah, a kid? That was very much. Can I just say one other thing? Though, on yeah, the sure. Thing? Because the one thing I do want to say that I feel, and it's not just with the Me Too movement, it's just in general, and this is something I've been thinking about a lot. The one thing that bothers me about these sort of, you know, public floggings of people or pushing them out of, you know, just like, you're done, you did this, you're done, is that I do, I I would like there to at some point be a conversation about redemption and is there a way back for people. I'm just not interested in ruining people's lives over mistakes. So is there a way for people to repent to make amends to come back? I don't feel like we ever really have that conversation. I think. Well, it's an interesting a t- subject right now because you have this situation in Virginia yes. with Ralph Northam, right? Who, um, you know, may or may not have been in this picture that was on his yearbook page of blackface, right? Or the KKK person. First he said he was, then he said he wasn't. Um, there's pretty much unanimous opinion among leaders in the state, Democrat and Republican, that he should go because he's lost his moral yeah. authority to leave. Uh, to lead, he's hanging. He's hanging on, and, and and friends say he's hanging on because he doesn't want to to leave. Would be an acknowledgement right. that he was uh, essentially a racist. Yeah, and he um, and he and he doesn't want to be defined uh, that way. The counter argument is you 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 can leave, and you have life after that in which you can be exactly uh, yeah redeemed. And you know, I don't. I honestly, you know, I don't know Ralph Northam from yeah. a distance. It sure doesn't look like. His public life has been lived in the spirit of that picture. Right. But um, but on the other hand, you know, those pictures are really, really hurtful because they're symbols of a really, really ugly legacy of our country. Yeah. Well, and what I said when the news first broke, and a lot of people got very angry at me about it, is that I want to know – look, here's the thing. I think a lot of people look at these things and like, I would never do that. I would never do that. I would never do that. It's like, maybe that's true. But if you grew up in a different family, you might. Right. And if you grew up in, you know, in a a racist 
uh, town and this is where people thought you actually might do something like this. Um, the question, the, the, the whole reason I feel like, at least for me, that I talk about racial justice is to change people. So you want people to change. If at some point he was like, oh, my gosh, what have I done? This right. is terrible. You know, he leaves his sort of that bubble and realizes it and then has a real conversion moment and then tries to make amends. I think that matters. It you know, does matter. But that, then that's the story he should have told. That's the point. And that's what I said. So when it first broke, that's what I said. I said, so far, he, you know, I don't know enough about him to know what happened. If he, You know, and he hasn't told that story, which makes me think that story doesn't exist. And so without that story, I think it makes it very difficult for him to hang on. Or it, it does exist, but he is too embarrassed or ashamed or to acknowledge the 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 first instance and yeah. um and you know it you can't you can't claim growth and enlightenment if you don't exactly if you're not willing to acknowledge the the starting point now i think what began as a kind of moral character and character questions just devolved into a complete credibility issue yeah well also the things that he has said about you know he knows how to get shoe polish off his face right. and these kinds of things kind of suggests a lack of of real evolution now is he i think angela rye made this point when people say well look at how he's he is today he's different and she said yeah because he has to be different as no one would tolerate this in this culture so you have to kind of look at the things he's saying and he's clearly something's kind of not totally evolved right so so yeah so i think that there should be a path or, if, or totally candid yeah, I think there should be a path if there is true repentance and conversion. I mean, I'm using very religious language, but I think that it's, you know, it can be non-religious in the sense that that actually, if, if true repentance and conversion had happened, it actually would have been part of his story. We've seen this in American life. I mean, Robert Byrd, yeah. uh, you know, associated with the KKK, Justice Black right. was a member of the KKK and then ended up being progressives on these on, on racial issues by the end yeah. of their of their lives yeah. Yeah. and in 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 uh bird's case he was part of the group that filibustered the civil rights act and yeah. but later yeah helped um i also just think as you get older you just realize how much like you know, a lot a lot of things people you always oh, people never change it's like people always change like in mm -hmm. my experience <laughs> Yeah, um, and well, that's the point. Like I'm, I there are things I wrote five years ago probably that I would look at and be like, what? You know, yeah. I, it's just like we're, hopefully we're always evolving and always changing and getting more information and thinking about things. So returning to your evolution, yeah. <laughs> you uh, you went to the University of Maryland mm -hmm. and you went as you studied journalism. Yeah. Did you? Why did you want to? Did you know that's what you wanted to do, or was that like a no. way station? I was just so clueless. <laughs> like I really, I basically what happened was I had a friend whose older sister was a journalism major, and I was like, I like to write. I knew I was a good writer. That was the you know sort of feedback I got in high school, and so I thought um, I'll be a journalism major. <laughs> that is literally the amount of thought that went into it. And did you, while you were a journalism major, did it occur to you that, yeah, this is what I really want to do? Or were you just kind of like no, trying to get through college? No, I was just sort of going through it. I enjoyed it. Um, I uh, thought it was interesting. But by the time I graduated, I just felt like this isn't really w what I want to do. And you, you graduated and uh, 
not long after that, you ended up in the Clinton administration. Yeah. How did that happen? Again, total cluelessness, too. And just like it's amazing how much of my life has just been like falling into things. So I had I would I I graduated in 91. There was a terrible recession. Mm-hmm. It was like impossible to get a job. I One got, of the reasons Bill Clinton got to be. President. Yeah. And I um, so I had some I was working at a nonprofit <clears throat> with some like nothing job, you know, nine to five job. And I did follow politics very quickly to your earlier question. My family was obsessed with politics. It's all we ever talked about. Um, and so I was following it and I, you know, I took a liking to Bill Clinton. I just, and this was early, uh, this was, you know, would have been January of uh, 92. Mm-hmm. So he was not supposed to win, you right. know, like, first of all, no Democrat was supposed to win, but he in particular was not supposed to win. Um, so I wasn't doing it as a kind of, oh, I could maybe get a job someday. Also, because again, I was so unsophisticated, I didn't even know that that's how it worked. So I just thought I really like him. And I just want to like do something. Hey, to Let support me interrupt him. you for okay. one second, because it is it is a um, this is akin to a discussion we were having earlier. Um I think Bill Clinton was a really, really fine president, in you know, tremendous intellect, mm-hmm. um, you know, preternatural political skills. Um, but one of the reasons why people thought he couldn't win was because of his relationship with women. Yeah, and um, you know, someone said to me recently, um, and I have to, t- I have to say, the Clintons. Could not have been kinder to me in my in in my career in my life, you know. Yeah. So, um, but uh, someone said to me recently, "How could anybody vote for Donald Trump after hearing that Access Hollywood tape?" And I said, "Well, you know, the truth is, I, I supported Bill Clinton twice, and, mm-hmm. and we all did. Yeah, and he, and yet we knew that there was this part of him. And I was wondering, I was thinking to myself, would would that would would we today? I mean, could you? I wouldn't. Yeah. But here's the thing I would say. So you said we knew. I didn't. I Again, I was so naive. I, this is how naive I was. Um, I Okay. The other thing is I was absolutely in love with Hillary. I just thought, because I, you know, I did, I, was, I majored in journalism, but I did a lot of women's studies at, um, at University of Maryland. My mother's a feminist, you know, very kind of radical feminist and trailblazing woman. And so I kind of grew up with that worldview. And up until Hillary, women didn't really say they were feminists Mm -hmm. unless they were professional feminists like Gloria Steinem. And so the fact that Hillary was this out feminist and, you know, she was this, you know, successful woman. And so so I was like, wow, you know, Bill Clinton is so amazing because he married Hillary. I mean, this is literally how I thought about it. And I actually didn't believe the stuff. This is how I, I mean. I was very young and I was very naive, yeah. but I was like, "Why would he ever cheat on Hillary?" Because Hillary's so amazing. That mm-hmm. is literally how I thought about it. So I actually didn't believe any of it. And so, I mean, when I say any of it, at that point, it was really Jennifer Flowers was the main right. thing, right? And so I just thought, like, he has Hillary. Why would he do that? Yeah. So, um, so that wasn't really a factor for me. Um, but, but I guess my my question also is, should it have been? I mean, not for you. So, should, yeah. If- so I would say the Jennifer Flowers thing, no. I actually am a big believer that, like, that kind of, 
if it's consensual relationship, uh, certainly I wouldn't want to marry somebody who was doing that. But that's between him and Hillary. Mm-hmm. That that would that was uh-huh. my opinion then, and that would be my opinion now. Yeah. When we get into the other stuff, the Monica Lewinsky and Juanita Broderick, and you know these other accusations, I actually wasn't. Well, Monica hadn't happened yet, mm-hmm. and I, I so right. the other stuff wasn't. A factor. I'm not really asking you about you. Yeah. I'm not, yeah. you know, I'm not even sure about, you know. But I, I have rethought. I mean, I actually did an interview on NPR around the Monica thing. And I, I was like, I was wrong. I think I was wrong. I think that my attitude about her was wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, and so I, I definitely have rethought uh, the, those those things. Yeah. Um, but I so basically what happened was I ended up just uh, I was living in D.C. So I went to volunteer in the D.C. office. And at that point, nobody was volunteering for him because nobody right, thought he was going to win. Yeah. So it was like me and like three other people. And um, and so I think like the day I started was the day Hillary said the cookie baking thing. And of course, I was Happened like... Happened in Chicago. And I was like, what's wrong with that? <laughs> like, I was just so... This know? is where she said I could have stayed home and, and baked cookies, cookies and yeah. served tea, but I decided yeah. to and so the phone, you know, So career. I was answering the phones, people yelling. And so I was... Um, so to make long story short... Um, he got he you know he got the nomination and then he went on to win. In the intervening period, I took a job doing political at a political fundraising firm, a Democratic fundraising firm, and I wasn't able to volunteer anymore. So I actually hadn't been there in like three months or so when he won. And I always think this is a real testament to them that they call. I got a call the day before he won, and they said, um, you know, he's going to win tomorrow. And you were one of the people that was there in the very beginning. And so we're going to give you a job on the transition team. Hmm. And so... There's a lesson in that. And I got a job Get on the in transition early. team. Yeah, but I was all like... But again, I was just like, oh, that... Ha- like, really? <laughs> you know? So I got a job on the transition team. And then when I was on the transition team... I, you know, talked to all the different people that I was working with and they and I told them I wanted to work in doing something international. And they're like, you want to work at USTR um, because that's international and it's in the White House and Mickey Cantor's, you know, close to the president. And so through a series of events, I ended up getting a job there. So but again, it was all just so unexpected. You started off as sort of a a very very junior yeah, person like in the communications system. operation, yeah. but you stayed for till two thousand. Uh, yeah. I'm sorry, nineteen ninety eight. Yeah, and you became yeah the deputy deputy communications U.S. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I kind of, I think yeah. So I started out as a press assistant. I think the second year I became like their director for foreign media. So I handled all their foreign media, and then I kind of came up to being like the deputy. And the you office. were there when NAFTA passed, yeah. which mm-hmm. was the big. Right. Cornerstone of the Clinton trade policy. It's been controversial Mm -hmm. ever since. And of course, President Trump made it a cornerstone of his campaign. And he's altered it, you know, probably less dramatically than he likes to claim. But um, it is a big, still a big fissure in this country of people who support trade and people who feel like it's conspired. Uh, against them and against us. Yeah. Uh, so, what, what, as someone who is constantly evolving and thinking, <laughs> what is yeah. your uh, sense of that? Um, I think that I, yes, I'm much more liberal now than I was then. I was very much like a new Dem. I was, you know, a Clinton Democrat, basically. So, I think that um, I, but even saying that I have, you know, become more liberal on a lot of issues. I still think ultimately that 
trade is going to happen, and it's better if it happens with some sort of apparatus, mm -hmm. right? Whether it's the WTO or, or these trade agreements, you do want to make them. And one of the things that actually Clinton was trying to do was to make these make NAFTA more. Uh, you know, put environmental side agreements in it and labor, you know, agreements. labor agreements and that yeah. kind of stuff. So to try to make it, um, you know, I, I, I guess, I, and I also ultimately come down, I don't think trade is the problem. I think automation is the problem, right? So I think we're, we're kind That's of like- four out of five jobs are- Yeah, we're kind of looking now. at the wrong- Problem. It doesn't mean maybe not. A... Maybe not in the in the uh, in the '90s. Look, I think globalization is a fact of life, yeah. and the question is, how do you do it right. in a way that advantages the largest number of people and yeah. creates the the least disruption? And how do you deal with the people who are disrupted? And I, I think that's where we've fallen down. Yeah, I agree um, with that. So, what I find phenomenal is this next thing that clueless Kirsten fell into, uh, which is this like mega job at AOL. Yeah, yeah. How, how did that happen? Yeah. So I had been at the in the administration for about five years. And, um, and you know, the first four years were really wonderful. Um, I loved working. Mickey was wonderful. Um, I, I worked with great people. It was just a, a wonderful, exciting time. And then I um, as some people may remember, Ron Brown, the, who was the head of the Commerce Department, was tragically killed. Right. In a, and then in Mickey a, went over to Commerce. And Mickey went over to Commerce, and so did pretty much his whole team. And I decided, and I was, you know, supposed to go, but I decided to stay um, because I was actually going to Georgetown Law School at night, and I just was like, I, I had, and they were promoting me, so I was like, I'm just going to stay here and do this. And it just changed. Everything was different, and I was, and I became pretty unhappy there. Um, it went from being kind of an idyllic, wonderful experience to being a not very happy experience. And so I kind of got to a place of like, mm, I want to get out of here. And so I started looking around at other jobs in the administration. I had been being pursued by America Online uh, because there were, a friend of a friend was running their communications department, and I just was always saying, "No, nah, I just don't what the internet." Like, I don't know. I, I, you know, I, I always saw myself as working in government or politics or nonprofits, and the private sector was kind of bad, and um, so I just never would go talk to them. And then she heard I was doing other interviews, and so she said, "As a courtesy, you have to come out here." And talk to us, and so I said, "Fine, fine, I'll come out." You know, so then I went out, and I was like, "Wow, this to the is... West Coast." It was actually Dulles. Oh, I see. Yeah, and so um, I went out, and I was blown away. You know, at what was what they were doing, and the company, and I was pretty, you know, taken with it. And uh, they offered me a job running their international communications. Now I'm looking at my young uh, engineer here, Zane, who's smiling at the idea of AOL being on the cutting edge. Yeah, am right? I right? Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. it was a real thing. Yeah, and um, so I, uh, yeah, so they offered me a job running their international communications, and I, you know, it's a big ass job. Yeah, big job, and I a lot of money, and which again had never been anything I pr really, you know, I never thought I was going to make a lot of money. It was never a goal of mine. So, um, and so I ended up. So you cluelessly made a lot. Cluelessly of money. made a lot of money. But I also the funny thing is that I was telling you this yesterday is I also had been offered a job running communications at the International Trade Administration, which is in the Commerce Department, and actually seriously like was weighing these two <laughs> options. 
Yeah. <laughs> and so, <laughs> like, my friends still say, remember when we were, you were actually thinking of maybe going to the international trade? So, um, yeah, so I took the job and I'd, and almost like immediately became like the hottest company in the world. <laughs> yeah. It was just cover of every magazine, you know, and it was, yeah, again, total, So you don't claim credit for no. that, huh? Zero credit. Like I was dragged <laughs> out there, you know, and convinced I thought it was your to communication no. <laughs> skills at work there. No. Uh, yeah, and you stayed for four years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Why did you leave? Um, I, you know, I actually was never super happy there. To be totally honest, um, I think I was probably originally correct on the the working in the private sector thing. I wasn't passionate about it, except for the boatload of money. Except thing. for the money, and the, um, well, and I had fun maybe the first couple years. Um, I launched five international businesses for them. So I got to like go spend, you know, a month in Sydney, a month in Hong Kong, you know, and I loved the travel and I was really young and I was, you know, uh, so I was really enjoying that. But then I burn out in a really spectacular way. Uh, I was just, it was one of those seven days a week, 24 hours a day kind of jobs. You know, I lived in a house with no furniture. I mean, it was all the cliches. I never Mm -hmm. saw my friends. I never, I missed weddings. I missed birthdays. I missed, you know. I've seen movies like this. Yeah. And it it was, and I just crashed and burned. Mm -hmm. I really did. And I was just too young to understand. I mean, I took that job when I was just turned 30. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I, you know, and and today we talk about self-care. Nobody talked about stuff like that back then, you know, and I I just didn't know how to draw the boundaries. I didn't know how to say no. I just kept pushing and pushing and pushing until I finally just, I mean, it was really kind of crazy. Um, I mean, I remember one day I gotten back from a trip and I woke up and I couldn't see. Literally, I couldn't see anything. And I, uh, and I just went back to sleep and never went to the doctor because I knew it was exhaustion. You know, it was that kind of stuff, but I just kind of kept doing it. And then I finally just had a full on like breakdown um, and just, uh, and then just realized like, I can't do this anymore. And, uh, and so I went to my boss and said, I have to leave. I can't do this anymore. And so they said, well, we'll move you over to the foundation. And so they moved me over to the foundation and I did that for about a year and I still was like, this just isn't, it was much easier, but I was like, this just isn't, my heart's not in this. And then you sort of self-invented yourself or reinvented yourself as a, I guess I had too many selves in there, but you, (laughs) you reinvented yourself as a pundit, as a writer. Well, so, well, right after that, actually, I kind of fell into doing New York City politics oh. and New York state politics. And again... Oh, right. I, yeah. I forgot that Bell, little interlude yeah. there. And so I had moved to New York. Um, you know, AOL had bought Time Warner. And so I moved up to New York after that. And um, and then I ended up leaving about a year later. And so, But I was still pretty new to New York. And I thought, well, I need to meet people. And a good way to meet people is to kind of get plugged in. I was already kind of plugged into the Democratic You know, because half the Clinton administration moved to New York. Right. Um, And so I thought, I'm just going to go volunteer on uh, Andrew Cuomo's campaign. He he had a a, a brief abortive campaign for governor of New York in Um, 2002. Yeah. And so I... uh, So I went there with the intention of volunteering like a couple days a week. And the day that I arrived... (laughs) Again, everything is just so happenstance. The day that I arrived, the campaign manager was like, Andrew just fired the communications director, so you're the communications director. (laughs) 
And I was like, I don't, I don't want to do that. Like, I'm not interested in that. And he was like, well, we're in the middle of like a total shit show. And like, there was something happening. And like, you like, you're just gonna have to do it, basically. So I ended up working on that campaign. I actually was press secretary, I guess There, there was a communications director. So I ended up working on that campaign. Um, and then from that, it just kind of started, you know, I started doing work for the New York uh, Democratic Party. I ended up working on a mayoral race. I was I worked on a race with or not a, ra- a referendum with Howard Wolfson was running. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, uh, Bloomberg was trying to abolish party primaries. So right. I worked on that. So it was kind of just, again, this this all of a sudden I'm like doing this um and during that time i had a friend who worked in new york politics and she said i really feel like you should be on tv um because there aren't a lot of like younger democratic women on tv you know but there's all these like on the right they have all these women and i was like no there's just that's not for me like i don't want to do that why i'm actually a pretty shy person and i I was like i just don't want to be in front of people and i I just don't see. I just doesn't. I don't think I would be good at it, and it's. Too, I just don't want to do it. And um, and so she said, "Well, I'm giving your name to Booker's." And um, and so I started getting calls, and then I finally. I do have one thing in my life where if something scares me, I make myself do it. And so I thought this really scares me, so I'm just going to do it, just to do it, like to push through the fear. And I um, and so I. Did it? I did. Go, I went on. Um, I think the first time I went on actually was Fox, and it was like a Sunday, you know, like nobody's watching kind of thing. And then um, I just started getting all these calls from, you know, I didn't have an agent or anything, and I just started getting calls from like CNN and um, you know CBS and what. I think there was a vacuum. I don't know. I don't quite understand it. And so it just became like every day I was getting called to do this, and then. Um, Roger Ailes offered you a job. Yeah, and then about, I don't know, six, seven months after that, MSNBC and Fox both had me come talk to them, and Fox made the first offer. And Fox wasn't quite what it is today back then. You know what I mean? Like, it was sort of understood that it was, like, conservative, but most of my friends were like, oh, that's great. Like, you should go on there. They have a lot of viewers, and it will be good to have, like, another voice. It wasn't, hadn't quite become the behemoth you know, that it ultimately became. So I became a contributor, but I was still doing work like, you know, in, I think I was still doing stuff for the New York Democratic Committee and I was doing other consulting for like, I, I just... Was Bill Shine over there? When oh, you yeah. Were... Yeah. Bill's the one who actually hired me. Now working in the White House. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so I wasn't really thinking of it as a career. I was thinking of it more as just a thing that I was doing and after doing it for I don't know a year or two maybe I can't remember exactly um they had me guest hosting um Hannity and Combs remember that show one and uh and I had this that was like Hannity and Combs was like watching the Harlem Globetrotters play the Washington Generals yeah the liberals job was to always lose at the end yeah so what's interesting is I was the second time I had hoped second night I was hosting I'd never hosted a show in my life and they had Ann Coulter on and I got into kind of an epic confrontation with her where she lost how could that be she's so calm I know she is Um, but she lost it and actually like ripped her microphone off and like walked off (laughs) so it became this viral like thing and she like went 
nuts. And the funny thing is, that's why Roger Ailes hired me. So, because the next night, Roger came down to the set. I'd never met him before. And he left. And Sean said, he's never been on this set before. And it's because of what happened last night. I thought I was going to get fired. You know, and it was quite the opposite. He actually liked it. So he then basically said, I think you're really good at this. Do you want to do this? Just take a one minute yeah. to explain Roger. I knew him. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, I actually ran a campaign and against him, one of his candidates, when I was a consultant. And he yeah. was a consultant. And I knew him intermittently over the years. I have my own views yeah. about him. But tell me about him. Very complicated person. Um, I, I would never say that I knew him well. You know, I, I my, it was basically limited to a handful of meetings, you know, with him. And uh, in hindsight, you know, some of the things that women sued him for, he did to me. Um, I just honestly was so used to being sexually harassed, I almost didn't. I don't even think I noticed it. Um, and so just... Things that were clearly inappropriate, but I just sort of was like, yeah, this is just what men do all the time. Um, and my actually what bothered me more about him was his conspiracy theories and the crazy things. He, he was would, deeply paranoid. Person. Yeah. He said he would say really crazy things to me about the Clintons. And mm-hmm. I would just be like, why are you even saying this to me? I don't understand. You know what I mean? Like I w- it was, you know, or I would often have meetings with him and I would just think, what was the point of that? I don't yeah. even understand. Like we didn't really talk about you know what I mean like we weren't there to talk about my career it was just this weird you know all these weird just weird conversations um Roger was really a product of his place and time and he was like uh, that slim pickens uh, character in Dr. Strangelove who was you know rode on the missile down to Russia yeah um uh shouting and waving his hat yeah um so he really created a network in his own image he did. and that was imbued with his own sense of paranoia yeah well and he it was a very dysfunctional place and it was dysfunctional because he made it dysfunctional and so there was a lot of infighting and warring and chaos and uh it's just he also made a lot of money for them yeah oh yeah I mean, there well, was a market out there right it is extraordinary the degree to which that audience has been developed and they speak so um, directly to mm-hmm. the Republican constituency, the conservative constituency. Yeah. There's no comparable vehicle yeah. uh, on the Democratic side. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he was brilliant at what he did. There's no question. There's a question of whether you think that what he did was good or not. Right. But there, he definitely was very, very I, has a special talent for what he did. Uh, um, and he had a special gift for picking talent. Uh, you know, to to be cast basically, right, mm-hmm. um, and to create a story. Yeah, um, and I mean, people forget Roger began as a TV producer of yeah. the Mike Mike Douglas show. Yeah, and, uh, you know, he he understood television. He was a weird amalgam of this um, kind of strange political, yeah, kind of paranoia. Yeah, and. Uh, a kind of a genius for television. Yeah. And I have to say, you know, well, it is, you know, a lot of Democrats will say, oh, he only hired people who, you know, Republicans could walk all over. That wasn't my experience. Like when I got into it with people and I did regularly get into it with them. Um, and there was one sort of another epic thing I had with Megyn Kelly, which got, you know, really out of control. Um, and he said to me after it happened, he's like, this is why I hired you. Good TV. 
He's like, this is what, but he's like, this is what I hired you to do. Like, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, people are mad at you and whatever, but like, this is what you're, you know, this is what you're supposed to do. So it wasn't, I wasn't. You I left ultimately though. I did. Yeah. Why? Uh, I had wanted to leave for a while. Um, I actually um, had a lot of like personal trauma that had happened. I know. I want to ask you about yeah, that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, it, it sort of started, uh, my dad died suddenly I have a heart attack um, when I was, I think, 35. Uh, that sort of started a very kind of hard You wrote a for column me. about this yeah. uh, at the time of Anthony Bourdain's yeah. suicide. And mm-hmm. you and I were on a yeah. town hall together because I was talking about my father's yeah. suicide. And you talked about your own uh, suicidal episode yeah. um, that was during this period. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was actually right as I was starting to do TV and um, it sent me into such a spiral. Um, And I what I wrote about was, you know, one night really feeling suicide. I mean, the the suicidal feelings probably went on for about a month or so, um, but feeling really suicidal to the point that I actually put your head in the oven on and like, yeah, and then kind of you know, realize, oh my gosh, I can't do this to my family, you know, my, my brother, you know, who just lost his father. Um, so I was, so that, that was very traumatic. But then the following year, my grandmother died, who I was probably the closest to of anybody in my family. Um, and then during that time, my stepfather got liver cancer and was very sick. And then he died. I mean, this all was just like one after another. And, and there was, so I was extremely traumatized. Um, and I ended up getting kind of getting sick, uh, with like sort of mystery kind of stuff, you know, chronic fatigue, fibromyalgia, just really, um, you know, Nobody could figure out what was wrong with me. I now know it was trauma, right? But at the time, I, I just you know couldn't figure out what was wrong with me. Um, and so I do think I stayed at Fox longer than I would have because I just didn't have the energy actually to change jobs. I mean, at one point, you know, um, uh, why am I? Doing? Phil Griffin called me, you know, and from offered MSNBC. yeah from SMEC and offered me a job, a hosting job, and I just was like. I just was like, I, I can't, I don't even have, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Like I'm, I'm so struggling so much physically, like I can't even, and then I ended up getting married and was in a very traumatic marriage. I mean, it really was like almost 10 years of just co- constant trauma. And so I just didn't really feel equipped to do anything different. And so Kirsten, just, let me just ask you yeah. here. You wrote that column. It was the first time that you had really publicly discussed what you went through and yeah. your long-term battle with anxiety and yeah. so on. What's your message? To, what were you hoping to accomplish by writing that column? And what's your message to people who are going through similar trauma? Well, I wrote the column because my my fiance's brother is actually one of the leading um, uh, suicide prevention experts in the country. And so when I talked to him, I said, I'm going to write about this. What should I do, what should I say? What hasn't been said that needs to be said? And he said, look, we always focus on the people who actually commit suicide. We don't focus on the people who consider committing suicide and don't go through with it, which is a much larger number of people. And is what, and people need to hear that because when they see a famous person who they're like, oh, he had everything and he couldn't even hold on, they need to hear from people to say, no, you can actually, mm-hmm. and and you actually can get through it, and you actually can end up having a really great life, which mm-hmm. is what happened to me. Like I'm, I'm very happy today, um, and so that's why I wrote it. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't want to because honestly, I, I, I haven't written a lot about like my personal life. Um, and I think after writing that, it became clear to me because of the feedback I got yeah. that I have to talk about this stuff because so many people, including it, it people, is amazing. people in the journalism world who you would never think, you know, reaching out and saying, I'm depressed yeah. and I'm, I'm really struggling. I wrote and, this column about my dad in, I think, 2006, and I hadn't talked about it. He died in 1974. And... Um, uh, I was. I, I finally became. I finally realized the the same reason that I didn't uh, write about it was probably the reason he didn't go and get help. Mm-hmm. You know, the sense of stigma. I didn't want to yeah. besmirch his reputation or his memory or so on, and that was wrong. And yeah. I've, I've I've finally told the story, and I I've never written or said anything that got more of a reaction Same with me. than that. And the letters and the calls were really mm-hmm. touching. Yeah. And you realize that we just need to be, the way you attack a stigma and encourage people to get help is by making it clear how pervasive mm-hmm. this is and how, you know, yeah. one should not feel, yeah. uh, you know, diminished any more than one would by any other illness. Yeah. You know, it's not a character defect. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that I probably, when I was younger, really did feel like, well, I, you know, my image is like, I have it mm-hmm. together and I'm, you know, on top of things and yeah. I'm strong and whatever instead, you know, and then you just realize like, that's, that's not helping anybody. Let me ask you uh, before we go about another element of your life, which is this, uh, is faith. Mm-hmm. Uh, because one other sort of self-revelatory uh, thing a revelatory thing that you've written about is your 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 uh, your journey mm-hmm. with faith because you didn't grow up no. uh, as a believer um, and this is another thing that in certain ways you kind of fell into yeah. by just so talk a little bit about that and um, and then I want to ask you a question about how it is to be a person of faith in a community of people that are maybe, you know, I don't want to say disdainful, but not understanding of it. Right. Yeah. So I, I grew up Episcopalian and I had some, I had a kind of, Faithish, you know what I mean. Like I, I believe. Sounds in like God. a series. <laughs> yeah, like I believe. Faithish. I believed in God. You mm-hmm. know, like that was. And I went to a Catholic high in school. An abstract kind of. Yeah, way. yeah, but it was. I didn't have any really. I didn't. It. It wasn't anything really that strong. And then in college, I kind of lost whatever little bit that I had and became, I I sort of went back and forth between atheist and agnostic. Like that was Mm -hmm. sort of my spectrum. And then I started dating somebody who went to church and I, um, which of course is one of these things, like a few weeks before I met this person, a friend of mine said to me, like, I want to set you up with somebody. Like, do you have any deal breakers? And I said, I have one deal breaker, no religious people. (laughs) And sure enough, here comes this person. And so um, he basically sort of put it to me like, you know, a couple months into the relationship, I feel pretty serious about you. I feel like we could maybe have a future, but it's really important to me that, you know, I'm with somebody who who shares my religious beliefs. And I was like, yeah, that's not going to happen. And so he said, well, could you keep an open mind? And so I thought I could, but I don't know why. This doesn't make any sense to me. And so he said, just just can keep an open mind. Just come to church with me, whatever. So I started going to church with him and um, I really liked the pastor. You know, he was, 
he was really, I'd never really heard the things that he was saying. So he would talk a lot about philosophy and art and, you know, uh, just all these different things kind of weaving them together. And so um, I ended up, it's, it's a very long story, but I ended up ultimately having this kind of spiritual experience where I just all of a sudden really um, became a believer, you know. I mean, um, it like, like a born again type. Yeah, thing. yeah. Um, and I, I. Well, you, you were, you, you feel like you saw. I had like a dream, Mm -hmm. you know, that felt sort of like where Jesus came to me and said, you know, here I am. And it felt very real. And I never was able to kind of shake it. Like I kept kind of trying to shake it. And it just, I couldn't, I wasn't, you know, people will say like, um, oh, it was so brave of you, you know, because I was in such a secular environment Mm -hmm. and all my friends were mostly atheists or Mm -hmm. very like lukewarm kind of maybe sort of, you know practicing something um and i was like no it wasn't brave because i really i didn't want to do it you know i wasn't like oh this is great let's do this i was like i don't want to do this i don't i have this is not fit into my life you know my life is a life of a totally different life and so i sort of felt like i couldn't shake it so it's been a kind of wild journey i would say you know that i have and and, uh, has it provided ballast for you it ha- it ha- in, in it does dealing with now. some of these anxieties that you've had it or? does now um it didn't in the beginning and i can see now in hindsight why it didn't in the beginning because the church that i was going to was an evangelical church and it was in new york so it's not your sort of it was a lot there are actually a lot of democrats there and it wasn't a super political place because it's new york it was new york city right but I never I'm really. really I, I didn't even know about the evangelical Manhattan scene. Oh yeah, it's a thing. Yeah. Um, but it's but they're the minority. They're mm-hmm. the you know they're the ten or fifteen percent of evangelicals that didn't vote for Trump, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not the and but but at any rate, even allowing for all that, I never really fit in, and I was never really comfortable, and I was never and I've even had people like they will identify me as an evangelical. I never identified as an evangelical. Um, I think what happened was I didn't know anybody else who was talking about God. So like these were the only people I knew. None of my friends were talking about it. So I sort of was like, well, this is where I need to be. And so I kind of went on this journey that was actually fairly anxiety producing for me uh, because I kept feeling like this doesn't feel right to me, but I don't know what how to do it. But now you found. I do feel like I finally have settled into something that's more back into Catholicism for me. Well, so my family was Catholic. My mom's side of the family was Catholic. And so I, I ended up converting to Catholicism and. That actually felt more comfortable to me. Um, but even that has – everything in our world has become so political, you know? So it's like even within the Catholic Church, then it's like all the fighting between the conservatives and the liberals and the whatever. And it's just like, ah, I just don't – this isn't what I want. And so I, you know, I ultimately discovered this man named Richard Rohr who's a Franciscan priest and he's um, – uh, has just a very different perspective, I would say, than than most people, and that's when I finally was like, okay, I can do this. So I'm interested, uh, and we're going to run out of time yeah. here. We we haven't talked about Trump, and I actually I'm be, I, I think as we get to the end of this, that the absence of discussion of him is probably refreshing to yeah, everybody. Right. But um, but I am interested in this division between sort of metropolitan secular people and people of faith um, because that does have political implications mm-hmm. there and there is 
I mean, I, I consider myself, I'm Jewish. I, I consider myself a secular Jew. Mm-hmm. But um, but I, I, I do sense the disdain that people feel, you know, in secular circles f- for people of faith and maybe the other way around as yeah. well. Um, and I'm wondering how you feel as someone who uh, is a person of faith and has ma- consciously made that yeah. choice uh, because you travel in some of the same circles that I do. Mm-hmm. If people are disdainful of it, they don't show it to me. That's all I can say. I, I have to say, so I would say originally, so that this all was like 13 years ago or something. Yes, people were more disdainful. I do feel like something has kind of shifted and that, and, and it could be just my friends are getting older, right? And are starting to kind of have questions and are wondering about spirituality and, you know, and so I, I, I find that people are more interested in it. I also think, look, I mean, I was going to an evangelical church and nothing's going to make like my Democratic friends more angry than that. Right. So and same thing with my family. My, my family flipped out. So um, it's and understandably so. Because to them, evangelical meant Republican and right wing and hates gays and all these other things. And so um, I, I understand that. I think that where I am now, I don't I don't ever get the sense that people are that mm-hmm. uncomfortable with it because it's, um, you know, I but I would understand why people I, I, I think it's legitimate. And I think actually evangelicals have not comported themselves very well in terms of, of Donald Trump and that um, I, you know, that there's a reason they have a bad reputation, right? And I and I think that it's fair for people to be bothered by that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think um, uh, like everything else, we reduce each other to caricatures. Mm-hmm. That's one of the problems we have in this culture. Right. And uh, this is one of those mm-hmm. both ways. Yeah. Uh, in ways that are, are destructive. Um, but yes, it's much harder when you actually know the people. Yes. And And that's true of every, yeah. And one of the reasons I do this is because I think it's harder to, it's harder to caricature people and and hate people if you, if you know them. Yeah. And so that, that's what was good for me having that experience. Right. So I I went to that church for a couple of years. Uh, I still have relationships with people who go to that church or other evangelical churches. And we disagree on a lot of things theologically. We disagree on a lot of political issues, but they're not the people, they're not what like my family thinks they are. Right. It's, or what some of my friends think they are. It's, it's more complicated. Um, and you know, and so I think that it is good to know different kinds of people. And that was actually a good thing about working at Fox, even though there was a lot that was hard about it is getting to know a lot of conservatives, um, who, you know, Steve Hayes or Charles Krauthammer or, Mm -hmm. you know, George Will or people who I disagree with on almost anything, you know, but who really are thoughtful, were thoughtful people and, um, you know, it's like it, it, you have this idea of yeah. who they are and then you get to know them and it's like, well, wait, it's actually not like that. Yeah. Well, Kirsten, it's good for, to know you <laughs> and you're a wonderful presence oh, on, on TV and in print. Uh, and i um, so happy to spend this time with you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit axefilespodcast.com and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. 
For more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu.